Please take out your Bible. Turn over to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. As we talk about living far from home. Living far from home. That's our focus as we continue this year. As we understand that we're part of God's kingdom. And we're pilgrims and sojourners just passing through. 1 Peter chapter 1. In a minute we'll look at verse 17 through 25. I encourage you to take out your sermon outlines, if you would, as we study God's word together. The Puritan, Thomas Watson, he rightly reserved that redemption was God's greatest work. He said this quote, great was the work of creation, but greater the work of redemption. It costs more to redeem us than make us. It costs more to redeem us than to make us. In the one there was but speaking of a word, in the other the shedding of blood. That's a powerful Powerful statement to think about how important our salvation is. Let's look at our text for today. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 17. Peter said, And if you call on him, the Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And may God add his blessing at the reading of his word this morning. Well, because Peter emphasized in the verses just before this to live a holy life just as God is holy, we are to be holy. We're to behave in three ways in these verses that we just read. Number one, live in awe of God during your exile. Now think about that. We are pilgrims, we're sojourners, we're ambassadors and citizens of heaven here on earth. And so we need to live in awe of God during our time here. Look at verse 17 that we just read. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially, According to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. We are to live our lives as accountable, accountable to the Father. We're to conduct ourselves with the fear of the Lord. We're to live life with the idea of accountability at the end of our life in the back of our minds. And we're to respond with our lives in a way that honors God on a daily basis. Now we as Christians and much more those that are uh, not believers, not followers of Christ. I think we all are seeing in our culture a struggle to fear the Lord. We've kind of lost that sense of awe and respect that God is a judge. He's an impartial judge as we talk about today. But we need to renew that aspect in our lives to have the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Someone who walks in the fear of the Lord, they have a tender conscience. They're sensitive to 
the Holy Spirit and God's word. They're sensitive to sin as well. When the temptation comes, if they're fearing the Lord, they're reminding themselves to look for the way of escape, as it says in 1 Corinthians 10. And they're aware of temptations to sin, and they look for ways to escape it. That is the fear of God. And why should we live our lives in reverential respect to God? Because one characteristic of God is that he is a fair and impartial judge. It's true that we see places in the New Testament where we come across the word Abba, Father. It's a term of intimacy, of tenderness and compassion, of personal relationship with us. But we also have to balance that out with the fact that God is also a judge in his pure form, in his perfect form. And we're called upon, as those who are passing through this life onto an eternal home, we're to live a life that's examined compared to the word of God. Socrates says, an unexamined life is not worth living. That we are to be lining up and looking to the mirror of the word of God to compare our lives. So we're called upon to do that. And if you don't have a standard to compare to, even as an unbeliever, you'll be content all the time out of ignorance. We're not to err on the side of being overly introspective. Martin Luther, he struggled with that before he was a believer. He would go constantly to the priest, and the priest would say, go home, you've confessed enough sin. I don't know about you, but there was a period in my life, in my young Christian life, that I was very introspective. I began to look at everything in my life, and if you start doing that and you just focus inwardly, you, you, you start thinking you can't do anything right as far as God is concerned. But we need to be balanced. We need to be honest with the Holy Spirit and God's word as a mirror to live a life examined with our sin confessed and turn away from that sin and turn to God and to be committed to our fellowship with fellow believers. So how God may use his characteristic of judgment in our lives as Christians? Well, first of all, he disciplines those he loves. And I'm grateful for that. Hebrews 12, 7 and following Hebrews 12, 7 specifically said, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? When I was youth pastor many years ago, um, I had a, a video that we showed to our students, and it was that of a ninth grade boy. And he talked about being a freshman in high school, and he had all the freedoms. His dad let him do everything. His parents were divorced, and his dad was wrapped up in his work, and his dad just gave him money and said, go do whatever you want. You don't have any curfews or any limitations. They fast forward and showed a video of when he was in a senior in high school, and he was weeping on this video, saying that he didn't have any sense that his father loved him because he didn't have any boundaries or restrictions in his life, and his life was a big mess as a result of that. Our father loves us. He puts guardrails and boundaries so we know how to, he knows he wants to protect us and provide for us through the things that he gives us. And when we don't, he pulls us back by discipline. Another way that God works and is, as judge is indirectly in Matthew 18, God uses the church to deal with those who are committing public sin, who haven't repented of it. And the church is used of God to bring judgment upon them with the goal of bringing them back in fellowship with God and with the local body of believers. The use of the word judge here, it means in these verses that God is the judge in order to find the good in it. He's not judging to be negative and with the hammer to pound on us. 
He wants to see the good that's within each and every one of us. That's his purpose. Take your Bible, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 today. And I love this passage because all of us, if we're believers in Jesus Christ, we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ at one day, according to 2 Corinthians 5.10. We're going to give an account of our life, and it won't be based on our sin, because Jesus has paid for that. It'll be on our words and our actions and our motives of what we did for him. And Paul tells us what that's going to look like in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10. He says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. And someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon that foundation. And then he talks about what that foundation is. For no one, verse 11, can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So for doing what God wants us to do, the good works, as it says in Ephesians, that God has prepared for an advance for us to do, and we're doing them to glorify God. We're doing it to further his kingdom with the proper motives and attitude. Then we're going to have plenty of gold and silver and precious stones will be our reward after the judgment comes upon our lives. But then those things that were improper, that were wrong motives, selfishness, and we do those things for selfish gain, then it's going to be like wood hand chaff or stubble that will, uh, straw that will burn up. But notice verse 15 that, it isn't losing your salvation. You will still get into heaven no matter what happens because you're a believer in Jesus Christ. There's going to be a reckoning. There's an accountability. That's what the first part of 1 Peter chapter 1.17 talks about. But look at verse 18. You will live your life as if it is not your own. You will live your life as if it's, as if it's not your own because you're in awe of the one that you're serving. Verse 18 of 1 Peter 1 says, Knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. You and I, we were bought with a price. Bought with a great price. We were ransomed. If you're a believer in Christ, you were ransomed with an inexpressible price tag. We were ransomed or redeemed from being slaves to sin. That word ransom, the redeem, means the cost of salvation and how God received the payment for your sins and for mine to take them away. Another way of looking at it is the purchase or release of a person by paying a ransom or to deliver by the full payment of, asking, of an asking price. In the Greek culture, when this was written, it was talking about purchasing a slave for the purpose of setting them free. Passover is a good picture of this. Passover has great meaning. If you remember back when the Egyptians had the Israelites in slavery for over 400 years, and Moses was called to be the deliverer, and he brought nine times he went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. And when Pharaoh said no and hardened his heart, plagues came nine times, right? But the tenth one was the worst. 
And so what God did was to prepare the Israelites for this 10th plague. And he told them about the Passover. He said that on the night that this is, the night before this is going to occur, there's going to be a death angel during the night that's going to come. And he's going to come and take the firstborn of those who live in Egypt. But he said the way the Israelites can save their firstborn is to take a lamb that was spotless and without blemish, kill it, take its blood, dip a hyssop in it, and put it on the doorposts. And when the death angel comes, it will pass over because the covering of the blood. And that's a fantastic picture, a lead into what Peter is saying here. As great as that story is, and the ability to save children's lives by the covering of blood, it pales in comparison to the story Peter shares here about God's redeeming of mankind and the wiping of the slate so that we are clean from our sins. We are saved from the futile way of thinking in the flesh, only that we had before coming to Christ. Think about life before Christ. Maybe you got saved as a child, and maybe this wasn't your experience. Or maybe you got saved as a teenager or as an adult. But think about what the futile thinking was before salvation. We live life by our selfish desires and our passions. We live by how we feel and what we want for ourselves. We are our biggest fan. Because it's all about us. We rationalize our lies, our distortions about ourselves that we create in our mind. And our selfish way of living is independent of God and what he wants. And so what it does is it creates problems in our relationships, in our choices that we make, as we try to seek happiness and fulfillment for ourselves. The word futile here means to speak, speaks to spiritual ignorance and understanding. We were void of understanding the things of God before we were a believer in Christ. And we need to remind ourselves that there's lots of people walking around us in the futility of their thinking. In Ephesians 4.18, it says they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. Paul talks about this in 1 Timothy 1, what his life was like when he was futile in his thinking. In 1 Timothy 1.13, though formerly, I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. God forgave him. God renewed him, transformed him from his former way of life when he realized his ignorance and he surrendered his life to Christ. In John 15.5, Jesus said, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, this doesn't mean that in our world around us that there aren't great humanitarians. There aren't great athletes like Michael Jordan, and we could fill in the blank with so many other people as well. They use their God-given talents and abilities, and, and, and it's amazing you know, what they do. He's saying that if you do it for yourself, it's worthless because it's only going to last in this life. But if you're doing it for the glory of God to honor him, to exalt him, to point people to the cross, then that's of great value because it's valued in eternity. And he said, you inherited this ignorance from your forefathers, the futile way of thinking. Jesus talked to the religious leaders, the Pharisees in Matthew 15. He said, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. They, we are, we have to be redeemed from our false notions of religiosity. For each one of us, we come from different experiences. 
as I teach at Scott, I got 13 students. Only two of them have any church background. So it's amazing how few people now have a religious background in our culture. But if you grew up that way, some people think it's just about doing good works and attending church and, and putting the money in the offering plate. That's not what gets you into heaven. It's a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's what he was, Jesus was saying to the Pharisees. Look at the end of verse 18. The price of our salvation was inexpressibly expensive. The picture of what it costs is a picture of a spotless lamb without blemish being taken to the temple for the family sacrifice to remove or cover their sin in that case. God set the price tag for the world's sin and it was not measured by the world's standard of silver, gold, and precious stones. It took a much higher price of extravagant worth and he sacrificed his one and only son for us. Look at verse 19 of 1 Peter 1. Look what it cost him. But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The blood represents all the work of the cross and the resurrection to bring about the ability to be saved for eternity. The blood of Christ, as you know, not only covers our sins. That's what it did in the Old Testament. But now it takes away our sin. And when God looks upon us, we're covered in his blood. And he doesn't see the sin in our lives anymore. I just want to remind you, we will not be judged for our sins in heaven because they've been cast into the deepest sea, never to be brought back anymore. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, I want to just spend a few moments on this verse to really drive home what Peter is saying here. I call this verse the great exchange. It says, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. If you want a fancy theological term, this is called imputation. It's taking something from someone else's account and moving it across and putting it in someone else's account. In this case, he was talking about, first of all, for our sake, that Jesus took the sin and the guilt and the shame from our account and placed it upon himself as our substitute at Calvary's cross. It says he knew no sin. He didn't deserve to die on the cross. He didn't want to do that. But he says, not my will, but your will be done to his heavenly father. He had no sin in his account. He was perfect. And he took our place and he took the wrath of God upon himself on our behalf. Isaiah 53, 5 predicted this. He says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. The second part of 2 Corinthians 5.21 is this. That Jesus took his perfection, his righteousness, and imputed it and placed it into our account that has no sin in it anymore when we come to Christ. We have the ability, and through the Spirit, to live righteous lives, or right living is what righteousness means. We have the ability to pursue holiness, because of the indwelling Holy Spirit that comes to us when we trust Christ. And that gives us the capacity to live for God going forward. I hope you're thankful today for the tremendous opportunity of the great exchange. That when we came to Christ, he took our sin from our account, moved it over to his account, and gave us his righteousness. What a tremendous privilege we have as believers. God, who is holy, righteous, and the impartial judge, 
He cannot ignore sin in our lives. He can't give us a pass because he is perfect and pure. But God in his divine wisdom reveals the terms of payment as the creditor, the one who leases our life because he created us. The creditor decides the payment in this case, and God said that payment would be his son dying on the cross. Acts 20, 28, Paul said this to the Ephesian elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained or purchased with his own blood. Knowing all that in the background of your mind, playing all the time as a recording, we should be knowing that we are not our own, that we are no longer for ourselves. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 6, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. When I became a believer at age 14 and understood what it was to go to youth group, one of the things that was driven home to me time and time again was that the person that was always with me was Jesus Christ. He heard all my words. He went with me wherever I went. He was always the unseen guest at everything that I did. And that made me accountable and to think about what I was doing. What were my actions going to be? What were my words going to say? Were they going to honor him? And so as we think about that, I, I think of that song that Austin leads us in from time to time. Christ be all around me. And he surely is all around us. So our application after this long first point is this. How are you living during your exile away from the Father in honor of him? Do you have the sense that God is with you wherever you go? That you're carrying with him, you, the Holy Spirit, that you are the temple of God and what we put into it and what we put into it, either eating or um, medicine or whatever we put in our mind or all these things, they affect this temple of the Holy Spirit. So as you think about all that, Christ and the Holy Spirit has done to redeem us and adopt us into God's family. Second of all, live with faith and hope during your exile. Live with faith and hope during your exile. In 1 Peter 1.20, it says, He was foreknown, Christ was, before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest or made known in the last times for the sake of you. To reveal himself so you could be saved, verse 21, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. All this is done on our behalf. First of all, unto this point, God revealed his son as savior of the world as planned. Now, I want you to know that when God created the Garden of Eden and he created Adam and Eve, and then all of a sudden they sinned, God wasn't in panic mode and he said, oh, I got to come up with plan B. No, he knew from the beginning of time that Adam and Eve were going to sin and the plan of redemption was already in place. We see the coming of Christ as it's talked about here, the incarnation, God taking on man's flesh to reveal himself in a special way as the Messiah come to earth. He made his appearance in the first advent when we celebrate Christmas. And the verse says there in verse 20, in these last times, it means from the birth of Christ to when he went back up to heaven as he left planet earth at the Mount of Olives and ascended to be with the Father. In verse 21, it describes the resurrection of Christ, which was the proof of the sacrifice for sin, God's redemptive work. 
Acts 2.24 says, God raised Jesus up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it, by death. Think about that. All hell was pledged against Jesus coming out of that grave. And there was no way he wasn't going to come out. And as a result of that, second under this point, God revealed his son as the exalted one as planned. He was to be the savior of the world. He was going to die. He was going to be humiliated in his death. He was going to be buried. He was going to rise again from the dead. But 40 days later, he was going to be exalted to go back to his place, his rightful place next to the throne of God, his father. Why did God in Christ do all we have described today? It was done for you and I in our eternal and current privilege and benefit here on earth moving into eternity. Look at verse 21. It says, so that your faith and hope are in God. That's why he did all this. As we endure the darkening of a culture, as we watch how things are changing so quickly. So I was watching this morning just some, of the, uh, some headlines from a show. And all the things that just happened in one week, it's, it's mind-boggling to think about in our culture. And that's why we need to root our faith and our hope in God. And it's all done through believing in him alone. The gospel is at once exclusive and also inclusive. It's open to everyone, but we must come to God on his terms. John 3.16. Let's say that verse together. If you don't know it, read it off the screen. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I know it in the King James, so I probably didn't get it the same way you did. But think about that. It's open to everyone. It's inclusive. Anybody that wants to come. But it's exclusive because in John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And one of the raps that Christianity gets is, oh, you know, you guys got the corner of the truth. And you think it's exclusive, an exclusive club. Well, think about so many things in our world that's exclusive that we want to do. Uh, two of my kids, their families are headed to Disney World at two different weeks in October. And Joshua and Bethany are taking their families down there with their kids. And, you know, to get into Disney World, you've got to be exclusive. You've got to show up and buy the ticket. You've got to go through the main gate. If you try to climb over the wall by Cinderella's palace or something, guess what? Security is going to escort you out. It's exclusive. You've got to go a certain way on the terms of Disney World to get in. And we could go on and on and on about how that works in everyday life. So Christianity is exclusive, but it's open to anyone who will come to God on his terms. The blessing of redemption is faith or trust and hope in Christ daily no matter what we face, because the one who is faithful to redeem us and save us is the one who will offer faith and hope for us in the here and now in the nitty and gritty of this life. John 16, 22, Jesus gave us this promise as he was about to leave planet Earth. He said, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Two things have to be true if your joy is to be never taken away from you. One is that the source of your joy will last forever. And the other fact is that you will last forever. If either you or the source of your joy is mortal, your joy will be taken from you. 
Think about the rich man in Luke's gospel. He said, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. He knew that food and the things of this world were temporary, so let's get all we can because we're just like happiness is short-lived, so will our lives be short-lived. But the good news for us as Christians is our joy will never be cut off. It's a constant source because Jesus and God are the source of the, of the joy. And we are immortal if we know Christ as our Savior. Joy in being with Jesus is an unbroken line from now to eternity. It will never be cut off. So our application is this. How amazed are you, despite the fact that even when you and I rebel against God, God was faithful to redeem us? I hope you never get over the fact of what God did for you. And that's what Peter's trying to drive home. As we go through this book, as he lays out all the behavior and the conduct, as we go through times of persecution in our lives, the root is back to all the amazing things that God did to save us. So you and I, we have a dual citizenship. We're citizens of the country we live in, and we're also citizens of heaven, and we are ambassadors And I hope that we'll walk well representing the king here on earth in ever-abounding joy. The last thing we'll see today is to live with a changed heart during your exile. Live with a changed heart during your exile. Verse 22 of 1 Peter 1. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable Through the living and abiding word of God, verse 24, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. We see first of all here the transformation of the heart. We're going to set aside verse 22 to be the last thing we talk about. It's really the focus of this message, but the buildup is found in verses 23 and 24. Because 22 is the outcome of a transformed heart by the agent of the word of God. Remember, a new birth is a second birth. It took two parents to give you physical birth. It takes the Holy Spirit and the word of God to bring you spiritual birth into our lives. It says there, since you have been born again. It's a phrase that has a past and distinct action or event that happened at one time but has continued power and effect going forward into the present and into the future. So we didn't just make a decision when we crossed that line of faith on that day and that time that we did. That's just the beginning of the process as God continues to transform our hearts up to this very hour. In Romans 6, Paul said, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too, we too might walk in newness of life. Peter, in verse 23 of 1 Peter 1, uses the term seed. And that's a very appropriate word because a seed represents the source of life. Evolutionists, atheists, they tried to teach that life came from nothing. Spontaneous generation, they call it. And there was a Christian scientist named Louis Pasteur who uh, put that thing to rest. You know, Pasteur, we have pasteurized milk because of Louis Pasteur. We have other medicines and things because of him. But he set out to prove that there's no such thing that life comes from nothing. 
And so they always pointed to if you had trash and you put it in the corner of your garage and over a period of time because of the heat and the moisture, all of a sudden maggots appear in the garbage. But if you observe closely, flies fly into there and drop their eggs and that's where the maggots come from. And as he debunked that whole thing, it just reminded me that the seed is the source of life. And Peter is using that here as well. Everything that comes to life begins with a seed. Think about it. Plants, animals, human beings. Natural seeds grow, but then they die or fade away. But the spiritual seeds touched by God and the Holy Spirit will live on forever. We see the transformation of the heart by God's word. We see in verse 24 that Peter is taking a quote from the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 40. The flesh, all humans and animals will die. The grass, the wild grass, as he pictured from the Middle Eastern countryside. Glory-like, the colorful flowers that pop up throughout the growing season. The conclusion, he said all these things wither and die at some point. Human life is brief and people are passing away all around us, much like the grass dies in the winter. Job 3 says it this way, There the wicked cease from troubling in the grave, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together, they hear not the voice of their taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Guess what? The grave has the poor, it has the illiterate, it has the people who have little or no influence or or recognition in this life. But guess what? The grave also has the most influential, the most highly educated, the rich and the famous. The grave is equal to all. It happens to everyone. But the opposite is true for those who are in Christ. Like the word of God, we will all live forever. We put on the imperishable because no matter what happens to us in this life, we endure because the word of God will endure forever. In Matthew 5:18 it says for truly I say to you until heaven and earth pass away not an iota not a dot will pass from the law until everything is accomplished. As I've said many 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 times there's only two things on this planet that are eternal, your soul and the word of God. That's it. That's all it's going to pass from this life into the next. And lastly today the transformation of the heart to love sincerely out of pure obedience. So in light of everything Peter said so far, especially verses 23, 24, and 25, we come to verse 22. We're never to forget what happened to us personally when we received Christ, what happened at the cross to make salvation possible. So he says, in light of all that, we are to love one another sincerely and earnestly in verse 22. Look at verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Gratitude for what God has done should be what prompts us to have a sincere love for other believers. Because we trusted Christ and God shed his love in our hearts. In Romans 5, Paul says, And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Our hearts were purified when we met Christ and that purification process needs to be continually happening in our lives on a daily basis. As we said last week, we're to live holy lives and pursue God's holiness for ourselves. That result is an obedience to God and his word, 
which moves us to have, as it says here, a sincere, which means without hypocrisy, without hypocrisy. In the Greek language, they had a word picture for this. And in the market, they would sell, you know, uh, these pots of different kinds, and they were usually very beautiful. And, uh, of course, the more ornate ones were more expensive. And what somebody would do before they would buy a pot, would they would lift it up and hold it to the sunlight and look through to see if there was any cracks in it. Because what the marketeers were famous for was if they found a crack, they would fill it with wax, and then they would paint over it and sell it for an extravagant amount of money when it wasn't really worth that much. That word sincere means without wax, without hypocrisy in our lives, pure perfect. And he's talking about a love for our brothers, phileo love, Philadelphia, a city of brotherly love. But then he uses the Greek word for God's love when he talks about the earnest love. That's agape love, the love that only comes from God. And that kind of love is much more than a feeling. It's an act of the will. This sincere and fervent love is standard for all believers. This is giving and loving others with no strings attached. Love is giving of yourself to someone else without expecting anything in return. That is the mature love that comes directly from the Father. And when you and I display that kind of love for those who are Christ followers, and the world sees the depth of our unity as believers, it will cause them to be curious about our faith and bring people to faith in Jesus Christ. Sincerely, without hypocrisy, he says earnestly. Earnestly here means like an athlete stretching his muscles to the furthest limits that they can be stretched in order to accomplish a task athletically, doing everything we can. In 1 Peter 4.8, Peter says in another part of his book, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. So here's our application. Are you sensing God's transformation of your heart daily? Are you allowing the word to challenge you, to encourage you, to comfort you, to lead you, to say not this way, but this way? Are you allowing it to remove the dross and the waste from your life so that you can have a pure love, an earnest love for your brothers and sisters in Christ to walk as God says to be holy as he is holy? Our key thought here is that every Christ follower living in exile should display a sincere love for one another from a pure heart. Display it from a pure heart. Bill Broadhurst, he entered a race in Omaha, Nebraska, a 10K. He loved to run. And uh, it took him a long time to run because in the early in his teenage years, he had an aneurysm that paralyzed the left side of his body. His hero was Bill Rogers, famous runner. He's run here at the, you know, Bix 7 for years as well. And so Bill Broadhurst was running in this race, and so was Bill Rogers, his hero. Well, Bill Rogers ran that 10K in about 30 minutes. And Bill Broadhurst was still running two and a half hours later. All the signs of the race were gone. Everything was cleaned up. Cars were driving along the race path. Uh, no banners. Nobody was around. No clock anymore. And as he was rounding around to come to the last turn, some kids were riding their bikes and said, why don't you give up? The race has been over for two and a half hours. Some guy won first place and it's all over. Why don't you give up? And he says, no, I'm not going to quit because I'm focused on my hero, Bill Rogers, who will be at the end of the race. 
So as he came to the last couple hundred yards, Bill Rogers and 30 people came out of an alley, blocked the traffic, stretched a ribbon across the road, and congratulated Bill Broadhurst as he broke through the tape. And then Bill Rogers walked up and took the winning medal off of him and put it on Bill Broadhurst. Thank you for never quitting. Thank you for never quitting. You and I, we have to continue to keep at this thing of sincere love for one another in this life. And don't quit. If you're, if you're a Christian, remember that Jesus is at, finish, at the finish line. And he's got a victor's crown just for you. And he wants to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Today, if you're not a Christian, you need to join the only race that will give you a victor's prize for eternity. And we as Christians need to keep running the race. Jesus is at that finish line waiting for us. He wants to place the golden crown of life on our heads. Let's bow for prayer. And as we pray and sing a couple more songs, I pray you look into your heart of hearts and think about this. How will you show sincere love to someone this week intentionally who needs it? I hope that's your focus this week. You can come back next week and share. I got open the door for you to share some sincere and earnest love intentionally for someone who needs it this week. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it doesn't return void. We thank you that it is the living and powerful uh, word of God. And thank you, Lord, that as we uh, think about this message today, Help us to not quit. It's so easy to look around and be discouraged. There's many people aren't here today because of illness or travel, and we can easily get discouraged. But Lord, help us to keep our eyes on you. Help us play to an audience of one, because you're the one that will be standing at that finish line with the victor's crown for us, just like Bill Rogers and Bill Broadhurst. Lord, just help us this week to uh, reflect you more, through our transformed hearts that we may love others the way you want us to. We pray and ask in Jesus' name, amen.